0: So I believe we were in chapter two, chapter three,
1: chapter two, we started, I
2: think.
0: Yeah, we started, we got almost all the way through, I think. Oh, yeah. I know we got through the first paragraph. (laughs) Anyway, as my Bible has a paragraph. Yes, I put a little line mark in my Bible where we stopped. So we're ready to start with verse 13 of First Thessalonians 2. Keith, would you read uh, verse 13 to, through verse 16? Okay.
2: For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, in which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like many things of your own uh, countrymen, even as as they have the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always. For the wrath is come upon them to the utmost.
0: Hmm. My uh, version has God's wrath has caught up with them in the end.
2: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that better. Yeah. Yep.
0: But I don't think God's is in the original Greek. Hang on a minute, let me get my Greek. Text. so for thessalonians
2: actually uh I misread it. This is the King James, and uh the I'm, I'm reading off the computer screen and and of God is just above it, so yeah it's not so,
0: there. so it is wrath has caught up with them in the end
2: right that's right yeah,
0: yeah that's I trust the King James version to be a little more literal. That is true almost throughout Paul, is that he rarely puts it as God's wrath. He almost always just has the wrath. Right. Wow. Or wrath. Yep. And some scholars think that he's, um, in a way, mechanizing wrath as something not done by someone, but something mechanical that actually happens, which would be our closest we come to I mean, closest they can come to, to our understanding of it as natural consequences. Yes. Wow.
1: yes. Or a, a principle of operation.
3: Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm Okay. Any comments or questions about this?
3: Well, I see this phrase where it says, to fill up their sins always, which seems to imply until they get to a certain point, all of the consequences are withheld.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm
3: That's comforting, too.
0: That's comforting in a way, but wait out, watch out when your t- your cup is full <laughs> and it gets poured out. It starts flowing, overflowing, and you start suffering. I think sometimes people who don't accept our view refuse it because they think we're, we're soft-pedaling this issue of right.
4: sin. Uh, yeah.
0: They think that we don't believe God is at all, well, we don't because we don't believe God does the punishing. We don't believe in punishment. <laughs> right.
3: right. Yeah, that's the easy logical jump to make. In fact, this view, compared to the other view, says that sin inherently causes destruction. Otherwise, you could say if God didn't punish you, the consequences would never come, and then God steps in our and does something. But in uh-huh. this view. The sin produces punishment itself. Like if I run without eating, I'm going to feel so awful. I'll eventually faint, you know. God isn't making me tired. I'm tired because I haven't eaten for a day.
0: Yeah. I had an interesting discussion at camp meeting a year ago, a little over a year ago. A woman in the audience contended that it had to be God doing it because it was euthanasia. Wow. (laughs) And she wouldn't accept anything else. I went round and round with her and i said, what would you do if you had a son? It was a wrong, wrong analogy to make with her. It's had a son who was dying. Would you go ahead and kill him? She said, I had that exact thing situation and I wanted to kill him and put him out of his misery. Yeah. and I had to argue for justice <laughs> I found myself saying where's the justice in that you know and she kept saying there's nothing by the time the death of the wicked takes place there's nothing to prove anymore there's nothing and I I had to say differently but finally we just agreed to disagree yeah. I I could not persuade her otherwise she had to her mother's heart everybody should be euthanized. At the end, Mm. Mm. wow, so God would have to do it. See, and then
1: that's free, that's almost the flip side, and yet parallel to the argument that I run into with people who say that love must win everyone, or Mm -hmm. it's, Mm -hmm. it's not effective enough, and God. You know God's will cannot be defeated Mm
4: -hmm.
1: even no matter how long it takes love is gonna win so even Lucifer Mm -hmm. will finally be won back by love because you just need enough time
3: sort of like the process of evolution given enough time it will happen yeah which then of course takes away free choice because no matter how much the person hates God eventually
4: they're forced to live with him (laughs)
3: yeah and that opens the door to say, why bother to focus on serving God or loving God because we're going to get there anyway, you know.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, um, Ellen, Ellen White goes at length on that in the Great Controversy and mm-hmm. points out the fallacy of that, that there's no freedom of choice. There's force, You're uh, using force on people.
5: So was this lady at camp meeting basically saying that she didn't want to see her son suffering? hmm And that's why she called it euthanasia? Because, I mean, it is very difficult to see our children suffer. Yes. And in her mind, it sounds like um, stopping that suffering is the better way.
0: Mm-hmm. And but, And, uh, you know, I don't have as much of a problem with that view of euthanasia and in terms of simply physical suffering where a person is dying anyway mm-hmm. and you simply want to bring it to an end earlier actually i was thinking about this the other day because i have a a dear mother who is on her last we don't know how long but he wanted to put her on hospice this week and we weren't able to um, my brother was up and, and we were struggling with what to do she refused to be put on hospice she refused she refuses all treatment she doesn't want to be in the hospital or anything so we were we were dealing with this issue and <clears throat> my brother pointed out that once we could put her on hospice and they could give her morphine for her pain that would hasten her death and i started thinking you know i know that's true uh, what is the difference between that and active euthanasia, except that we don't arbitrarily have a set time where we terminate life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're really bringing it to a close when we use morphine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, don't, I don't have as much of a problem, but when... And, and I, th- I can understand her perception of tying that with the wicked if, in fact, her son never accepted God or never accepted Jesus. I don't know that situation. Right. But if she's tying that with all the wicked, I think that what we have to eliminate is the idea of God as the torturer
3: in any way. Exactly. Yes. Um,
0: But I do believe that the wicked would not be happy in heaven. Yes, That's categorically true right. uh, of the wicked. And if they're not happy in heaven, they're actually happy usually with hurting other people.
3: Right. right. Yeah, that's their joy because either you get joy from serving others or from forcing others to serve you, which would be yeah. a definition of evil.
0: And, 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 yeah. and, and get, get uh, actually sadistic joy out of hurting people which which there are some i have met in my life who do have that so i i think we're on you know at this point we can't say more because the rest would be conjectural and i i try to avoid being conjectural but it seems that god is giving people what they want what they've chosen he's not and, and honestly, in the canonical sense, that is the first the first use of god's wrath is in Exodus three, and it is God giving Moses what he wants i don't know if you remember that with the yeah, meeting yeah. at the burning bush and and Moses kept arguing with God against going to egypt i can't speak i can't do this and and god keeps giving him reasons and good reasons why he should go and finally he says oh please god send someone else mm-hmm. then it says and god's wrath was kindled against Moses, and he said all right is not aaron your brother coming i'll send someone else i'll give you aaron is that a good choice no that has a downside aaron's going to afflict Moses, not deliberately, but simply by reason of his lack of uh, consecration to God, he's going to be a problem for Moses all through the wilderness wandering until Aaron dies.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I wonder if Moses hadn't taken Aaron along, then maybe he wouldn't have struck the rock that one time.
0: (laughs) It's hard to know on that.
5: I just don't know.
4: Aaron seemed
1: quite weak of character.
5: Well, Aaron didn't get the, the 40 years that Moses did. <laughs> In the wilderness.
0: <laughs> he, he also was oldest son. Right. And can't, that was... Can't be that on him because it, was hard, it was a hard thing for him to submit to Moses. <laughs> Moses' little brother. That's true,
3: too. Oh, you're right. Yeah, Aaron was the older brother. Yeah.
0: And this is, of course, in a culture where being, being the primogeniture is just so important.
5: Right. And everybody has to bow to that. And Moses spent 40 years learning humility.
0: Yes. So he was on the opposite side. Right.
1: So I think it's quite sobering to sort of face the truth that uh, it can usually turn out to be a disaster if you win an argument with God. <laughs> wow.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Cool. Well, I, I kind of think that that's why I'm cautious about my prayers. I'm always praying, if it is your will, because I don't want to demand on my, my own way. I know better. <laughs> uh, there's been things I wanted very much in my life to have happen, and when they happened, it was disaster. <laughs> Yeah,
4: yeah disaster. It, it was
0: good for me to go through that, and I think that's why God allowed it to happen. But I learned not even to want something too bad.
3: Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, I agree. I've learned to pray the same kind of prayers because if I ask for things, I mean, who am I to know what is best for me? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't ask for things at all because I think God knows what I need. And if I have to ask in order to receive, then in one sense he isn't very powerful. I just want to live and let God give me what I need because he knows what I need. You know, and My life has become quite good. I, uh, I'm still thinking through that ask and receive thing because like then you can think maybe God is going to do something good and because I didn't pray for it, he didn't have legal permission to do it, you know.
0: It's it's easier for me to pray Yeah, it's easier for me to pray for others than for myself. I do ask things for myself, but I I always pray if it is God's will. Yeah. Well we kinda got a little bit sidetracked on that one verse. Anything else in these verses? Well, I
1: this I mean the whole first two chapters it seems clear that Paul is countering some slander or a lot of slander Mm -hmm. held against him. And yet, even in this part, he's doing it so deftly, you know, to try to avoid accusing the ones who are accusing him.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: And so he's talking, he says, you became imitators of the churches of God in Judea, you suffered the same persecutions from the people of your country just like they did. But then it goes on to say they try to keep us from telling the Gentiles how they can be saved. Mm-hmm. He's saying that it's the non converted Jews that are telling him not to talk to the Gentiles.
2: Right. right.
1: And yet, isn't it usually the case that it was the Judaizers, which claim to be Christians who are his greatest opponents. And is he just (laughs) trying to soften it?
0: Paul is not willing to go around accusing anyone. He will state the truth, but he does it in a way that they can't come back at him, claiming he's abusing them. But I think it's more than that. I think Paul sees Jesus and consequently God as someone who never accuses his enemies. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: And that's not... that. Actually, the key text for that is not found in Paul's writings, but it seems to be a fairly prominent message in the early Christian church. If you look at Jude... Jude, and I can't give you a chapter because it's just one chapter. Verse 8, Jude 8. Yet even knowing this, these dreamers in the same way pollute themselves, reject authority, and slander the angels. Mm. The archangel Michael when he he argued with the devil about Moses' body, did not dare charge him with slander. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people slander whatever they don't understand. They are destroyed by what they know instinctively as though they were irrational animals. (laughs) So, even though... Michael knows that Satan is slandering, he refuses to charge him with it, he refuses to accuse him with it, and I think that's what led Ellen White to make, in a comment, I think in Christ's Object Lessons, that God is polite, even to the devil.
3: Yes, amen. That's very important, because otherwise... So I,
0: think, I think this is the, I, think, I don't think God. Jude is the only one, Jude is the brother of Jesus, I don't think he's the only one in the early Christian church who believed that. I think Paul believed it. He certainly exemplifies it. Mm-hmm. The closest he comes to outright accusation is in 2 Corinthians in his stern letter. But that's where he's really pleading with them to come around and, and stop all of the vices they were engaged in.
3: Yeah. Because these actions obstruct our view of God, you know.
0: And it, it seems that, it seems to me that um, it's a lesson for us.
1: That's interesting. It says, these people who please neither God nor any group of people.
0: Where are They're iconoclastic.
1: <laughs> so really they... The accusers don't bring satisfaction to any group, which we're seeing that being amplified massively today. The spirit of accusation and slander is becoming the political norm now. Mm -hmm. And he says it's not pleasing.
3: Yeah, opposed yeah they
0: don't please God in are entire, I have, they are, ent- they are hostile to the entire human race.
3: <laughs> wow. Wow, that's true. that's true. Yeah, that sounds like some modern people, you know, basically, unless you perfectly agree with them or allow yourself to be perfectly controlled by them, then they're against you, you know. There's always been people like that.
0: We're, we're seeing this really rampantly in America right now.
3: Yeah. I mean, the definition of grace is to love those, you know, who first disagree with you and then at a much stronger level of grace who persecute you, you know, or those you love. That's, that's the highest level of love, to keep loving those that hurt you or those that you love. That's where God is.
0: I had a neighbor who was very difficult for about three or four, five years. And I found that the sooner I forgave him, the quicker I was done with what he did. And I didn't hold on to it. It didn't bother me. It didn't hurt me anymore. Yeah. For once, for example, one Sabbath, I came back. I was still in my Sabbath clothes, and he would let his pit bull loose. And the pit bull came up and started jumping on the back of my dress, which was made of fabric that could easily tear mm-hmm. and also down my legs, which had nylons on them. And I thought, oh, he's wrecked another pair of nylons, <laughs> it's not my dress. And uh, I got to my porch and I realized, you know, this is just something I've got to forgive him for, you know, and I let it go. When I got in and checked myself, everything was intact. Wow. <laughs> not a thing. Wow. And and I I don't know if that's because I forgave him or if God was just merciful and protected me. But um I I'll never forget that freedom I had when I forgave him immediately. Amen. I I no longer had any feeling of like somebody had twisted my insides or or something. Uh I no longer had that. I was in uh a a group on, the, on, on a character of God conference in um, Garden Grove, California. This was in 2017. And somebody asked, how do you handle people that are so against your picture of God? And, and what do you do to deal with that? And we were tr- trying to get toward the idea of forgiveness. as a group. I was in a panel. We were wrestling with this. And I finally said, you know, I have to love them because I don't want to be like them. Yes. And the alternative to loving them is to become like them. I mean, you can't, you cannot hate someone who hates you and not become like them.
3: That's right.
0: true. Yep. Right. And uh, there was—I remember there was just this dead silence in the room, like everybody was thinking that over. Oh, to me it just seems obvious, yeah. and that's—that's that's not the purest reason to love them. I should love them because God loves them. Yes.
3: Yeah. I remember in Hawaii, I would tell my friends, "I received love from God, and then I loved them, so I didn't need to receive love from them." And that partially worked. I'm still in that process because they were very loving. That helped me to love them back. There were people where they mistreated me. I could love them, but I still had this angst inside myself. I was thinking about someone yesterday, and when I realized why they bothered me, because they reminded me of my mother who was hurtful to me, then I was able to instantly have peace because I'm the kind of person when I understand why I'm thinking something, then I can release the thought But otherwise I can like obsess for days and I cannot let it go until I know why is this bothering me so much, you know.
5: So it, it sounds like it allowed you to separate the angst and give it to allow it to be to the person that it went to versus the one in front of you that it reminded you of your mother kind of thing.
3: Yeah, exactly, because if I had a different kind of mother, this person would not have bothered me at all. Right. Of course, the second thing is it also shows that there's something still in there towards my mom but there would have been nothing for this woman to stir up. So it's a, something I'm in process with right now you know, because right. that root must be
0: removed. Right. Okay, is there anything else in this paragraph that we need to muse uh, on?
1: Well just following up on our comments, I I've almost concluded that taking offense is the summation of all sin. I mean distrust is, is but distrust leads to sin, but when we take an offense, we're offended and we can't let go of it, that's what locks us in. Disharmony with God and Adam and Eve took offense, they believed lies about God, they were offended, they refused to answer the questions when God talked to them because they had they were holding on to an offense, even though it was a lie. And every I think every sin can be traced back to holding on to an offense because as soon as we let go of the offense, which is the definition of forgiveness, we're free. And we're synchronized with God.
0: That's really something to think about. Yeah. I, I don't know that we can always trace back <laughs> our sins to that. I, I don't mean that it's, you're wrong. I'm just saying I'm not sure we can always find all those pieces.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, my, I think many times it's subconscious. You know, we yeah. can't point and say, oh, I was offended. But I think subconsciously that we're holding on to an offense I mean, just like this illustration he gave, something did, someone did something that reminded him of an offense from years ago. Well, he didn't know. He couldn't trace it back immediately. Mm-hmm. But it caused him to feel offended. And, of course, he wasn't trying to hang on to it, but it was still lingering because it, had, it still had an anchor inside of there, and that anchor is an offense that has not been cleared yet.
5: Mm-hmm. You're saying earlier it goes through the power of forgiveness, yeah, of course it's so powerful to think of that that's one of the Jesus' you know seven statements on the cross about forgive say you know, father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, that says a lot there too, and mm-hmm. I also am thinking about when Jesus was before um Pilate, how they were accusing him or saying, you know are you God, and that kind of stuff. And, and he didn't say anything. To me, that is the most powerful, one of the most powerful mm-hmm. things Jesus said, did on this earth
4: mm-hmm.
5: was to not defend himself, mm-hmm. but just to be present.
3: Yes, Susan, I've had that same thought. I fully agree with you that the person who spoke the worlds into existence could stand there and not defend himself when you could, with one thought, obliterate the entire solar system.
4: Mm-hmm. To me, that was well, a can, go ahead.
5: That was just such a powerful moment, and it, it speaks a lot to, like, okay, when I feel like I need to be defensive, or, like, when someone doesn't agree, or, like, how do we deal with people that don't agree with our character of God? That's what comes to mind, is, like, wait a minute, do I need to be defending here? Or wh- what's what's mm-hmm. going on inside of me here? Is um, yeah. Okay.
0: Um do you want to continue on where we were or do you want to move on to the next passage?
1: Can we go to the next
0: one? Okay. I am sorry, I did not get your name. Enoch?
3: It's Enoch, yeah. yeah, Me, my name is Enoch.
0: Enoch, okay. Um would you read verses seventeen to twenty?
3: Of uh, first Thessalonians two.
0: Oh, actually, I will ask you to read verses 17 to chapter 3, verse 5, because that's all a paragraph.
3: Okay, here we are. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again that Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother, and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you, and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain.
0: Okay, uh, I can't resist. My my version has for when we could no longer forbear. Yeah. So when we couldn't stand it any longer.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, if you love somebody and you're not sure how they're doing, with every day the desire to know how they're doing increases.
0: It's interesting what he says that they wanted every they made every effort to to get to them, yeah. and he doesn't say God stopped us. He says Satan stopped us.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: And then he talks about bragging. My version has the word brag. Uh, what is our hope, joy, or crown? Verse nineteen that we can brag about in front of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Isn't it all of you? You are glory and joy. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: So uh, I thought that was interesting.
1: I mean, the word glory has a very nebulous definition. Mm -hmm. I've spent, I think, most of my life trying to figure out what glory means. You know, you sort of start out with glory is a bright light. You know, the special effects on the movie. You know, this bright light that glows. Well, that doesn't fit most of the places where it talks about glory. So then you got to keep expanding and expanding it. And this is an interesting addition to the definition of glory, is that you are our glory.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I've I've experienced this a little bit. I have a son in the faith. I can call him a son because I'm 20 years older than he. <laughs> and. I didn't know if he would come to believe the way I did. He was in one of my classes as a student. And uh, he seemed rather negative about it. And I remember just wanting him so desperately to see it and to accept it. And so... Imagine my surprise. This was winter quarter when he had took the class from me. Imagine my surprise autumn quarter. He calls me on the phone and says, I have to give Vespers Friday night. And I want to talk about the death of the wicked. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. Uh, You could have almost picked me up off the floor. I was on a swivel desk chair. I felt like I was going to just plummet and onto the floor with the shock <laughs> because I had given up hope. And he has turned out to be the most ardent promoter of what I teach. Wow. Nice job. Um, so I, I feel like I, I, I could almost brag about him, you know, I don't I don't like bragging, but <laughs> I I feel like in a way he is my glory and my joy. Mm.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's the way in which we are God's glory. The more people he has who talk about who he is and make him look good by their actions, that's God's glory because we're reflecting his character and it makes him happier. You know, The more of his kids that come back to him, the more his heart swells with joy. Mm-hmm. But it also becomes the
1: very attraction to draw others, which is why it's his glory. It's not that it makes God feel good, which it does, but more importantly, it affects how other people want to relate to him.
0: Exactly. I suspect, I don't know, I teach a lot of students, at least in the past I've taught a lot of students, so I don't know that I could say he's influenced more people than I have, but he may have. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. He has a greater charisma than I. I've
1: been wanting to ask you for quite some time, because I remember some of your stories of when you were in, was it Hong Kong? hmm And, you know, the difficulties you had with the craziness that was going on there in that school. But I remember you talking about some students, you know, that were actually... Respond. We had, I, had
0: a, I had a little core of five students who really liked what I portrayed about God. And we met quietly. We talked about things quietly. And, uh, yeah.
1: Have you stayed in touch with them?
0: I haven't. Um, I came back to, when I came back to the States, I was not in a good place. I did not want to come back. I was terribly depressed. The, When it became about the five month stage where I was going to be gone in five months, I got really depressed. Mm. And that depression got only deeper and deeper after I came back because I, I managed to come back on all the wrong feet and do all the wrong things. So I tried to keep in touch, but one by one they stopped communicating with me Mm. and um, then I a- and inadvertently had to offend one of the core that was not as strong in the faith. I don't really know why she was part of it, but she um, asked to, to live with me and I didn't know she was going to bring her boyfriend with her and they were going to live in the same bedroom. Mm-hmm. And I had to ask them to leave and I had to threaten them in order to get them to leave because her boyfriend was into something either pornography or drug abuse wow. uh, and she of course spread rumors about me back home <laughs> and so it was it was a very difficult situation there is one person that I've been able uh, though I haven't been in touch with him recently he's been very quiet and I think it's because possibly because of the political situation there mm. but there was one person who is the one who has stood the most loyally for the truth, and he's in a prominent position in the church.
5: Mm-hmm. That would not be. an
0: exceedingly would. prominent position, but... So, God seems to be able to give me one shining star, <laughs> and the rest are partly there and partly not. And mm-hmm. I did see... Uh, Six, five students baptized, and I studied with six, form six students who I never taught, but I studied the Bible with them because through their friends who had come to believe, and through my week of prayer that I did the last quarter, um, they became just very on fire for learning more about God. Uh, so who knows, in, in the end, I, I had something come out of the blue that was just incredible. And it was during a time when I was kind of suffering a bit. I I got a phone call from one of my former students who had not been part of any group who was not an Adventist, did not choose to become an Adventist while she was in my class, like some others did. Her name was Debbie. She called me. And I think I called her back. Uh, Anyway, we got in touch by phone, and she indicated she wanted to study the Bible with someone and that she was thinking of being baptized in the Adventist church. Wow. And it was in part due to my class. Mm. She said, what you said made so much sense, and she wanted to be able to study with me, and I, I diverted her to this other student that I told you about who's fairly high up and said, why don't you contact him? Because she knew him. She'd gone to school with him. Mm -hmm. I was only there three years, so they they knew each other. There's only 100 students in the the college. So I don't know if that ever got worked out. I did send him word that she wanted to hook up and, and do Bible studies. I never heard back. But it really amazed me that so long later, she still... Could remember what I taught her hmm. and was still affected by it. Yes. Wow. The
1: seed has within oh. it the power.
0: It does, it does, and, and this is why I'm not troubled as much as some people get troubled by the fluctuations in the church, by the, the rejection in the church, and by by the difficulties of the pandemic and our meeting having to meet this way I'm not troubled by all these things because of that very fact the truth has in it the power with the Holy Spirit guiding it and personalizing it to each individual uh, we have nothing to lose and we have nothing to be afraid of to just give it to the world Mm
1: -hmm. yes like the sower just throw it out everywhere yeah yeah And half of it gets dumped in places where it never produces fruit, and we do it anyway.
0: Don't worry about it. It'll feed the birds.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Yeah, Jesus sowed indiscriminately. He didn't care what kind of ground the seed fell on. He spread the seed everywhere.
0: Yeah. Do we want to go through more of this?
1: It looks pretty interesting.
0: It is pretty interesting. It's, um, you know, an insight into Paul's own emotional uh, connection to believers.
1: And I think the reason he's being transparent here is because that's how he came to them originally.
4: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: In fact, somebody recently quoted Anna White as saying, that God wants us to allow at least individuals to come close to us so that they can see Mm
4: -hmm.
1: how the Holy Spirit is working in our own heart.
4: Yes. Yes. And to do that
1: means you have to be more transparent and vulnerable and to expose yourself, you know, your weaknesses and stuff so that other people can see how the Holy Spirit is convicting and how you're changing your thinking and this kind of thing. And I don't think that should be with everybody. But these people had already responded. He'd already mentored them. He was reminding them of that because they were being challenged pretty severely by all the slander against his reputation. And all he's doing is rehearsing, why don't you just remember the relationship we had before, the trust you had in me before listen, this is how I treated you. Remember my affection, my sympathy, my vulnerability, and I mentored you, and you imitated that.
0: You know, you brought up something that just reminded me of something. I I don't normally look at ads on on YouTube. (laughs) Um, I normally just click them off as soon as I can. But this one was interesting to me. It's an organization that is trying to reach out to Israeli Jews with Jesus as the Messiah and they make no bones about it. Jesus is the Messiah and they're becoming quite effective with young, young, young adults uh, who are, who are Israelis. And they're the main thing they push is that Jesus is into relationships.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: that's the main thing they push and they had, different people, different Jews, Jewish young people saying why they were attracted to this. And, and one of them said, you know, he's into relationships. How Jewish is that?
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Good.
0: And um, it just, it put some pieces together because of my own study of the Old Testament. Paul is here being very Jewish in that he is into the relationships with people. And, and uh, I listened to a video, and I want to read his book. I have it on Kindle, but I haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, he's the, I believe he's the chief rabbi of Great Britain. He did a presentation at Cambridge University, and I've, I've showed it to my students, although it's very poor soundtrack. Um, but I've, I've listened to it innumerable times. And he's talking about economics and the self-interest principle of Adam Smith. And he's very much against that. And he says what we need is trust and trustworthiness. Yes. He goes through the the Bible a little bit. And he points out that a contract is an economic agreement based on self-interest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From, from ancient times. The covenant is a bond of trust. Yeah, right. That's the difference. And, and to hear a, a Jewish rabbi say this, and especially one as preeminent as he is, I can't help but believe that I have only just begun in maybe the last five to six years reading the Old Testament the way it was meant to be written, as an experiential book, as a a book of relationships, as as not a book of key texts. (laughs) Amen. And uh, I couldn't resist telling that story because um, I just pray that these young people who are getting this Uh, and are seeing Jesus as the Messiah, will go the next route and see him as God. And I also pray that God will protect them from getting trapped by evangelicals proclaiming that Jesus is going to come back to Jerusalem and set up a kingdom of force. So those are my two prayers for them. But it excites me to see that kind of thrust working with Jews. Beautiful.
3: Amen. Yeah, because I've said this to my dad a few times, that the Jews have more of the culture of Christ and we have more of the theology of Christ. And if you put the two together, then you're going to have wonderful things.
0: Yeah. So I have a special spot in my heart for Jews because even though I don't consider myself culturally Jewish, I've had this... uh, Privilege of looking Jewish. Amen. I could tell ten stories about that, but I'd rather spend my time on other
4: things.
0: (laughs) It's look. It's interesting how Paul cushions this. He's upbeat. He's positive about his trials, and he says, "You know very well that we were meant to go through this. So don't be discouraged. Don't be surprised." We were meant to go through this.
4: So it's important
1: for people to be aware of, it's sort of like full disclosure, right? hmm And that's what Jesus said is, you don't go to war unless you sit down and do your calculations. You don't go out and try to build a house unless you have already calculated how much it's going to cost and what it's going to take. And he said, Don't try to enter the kingdom if you don't if you're not ready to deal with what it's gonna to take to do it. Which is sort sounds a little like anti evangelism. But it's it's really more of saying, Well, you need to know what you're getting into.
0: Yeah. Amen. Before you make your final decision, yeah. look at these verses. All who live godly lives will suffer persecution. Rejoice when you are persecuted. It's it's going to happen. Rejoice. Uh, John seven no sixteen one to three. Jesus frankly tells his disciples, "You're going to suffer for my sake." Well, why do you suffer for my sake? Because they do not know. The ones who are making you suffer do not know either that me or the Father.
1: The problem is, and and. I grew up this way. Suffering became the important thing. There was a story that happened to me when I was very young. I don't know, maybe six or seven or something. And for whatever reason, my parents let me ride with a stranger. I guess they knew him. I don't know. And I don't know what it was about, where we went, or anything. All I remember is the conversation we had in the car. And since my parents weren't around, he just started to start asking me about my religion and what I believed. Well, of course, I was trained the typical conservative Adventist mentality of being defensive. And, you know, the truth is about the Sabbath and knowing the right answers and all this stuff. And so he began asking me just to summarize what we believed. Well, that terrified me to start with, because all of a sudden I'm called on to testify, and I don't know all the right answers already. And so I'm racking my brain thinking, let's see, what do we believe? Well, we believe in the seventh-day Sabbath, and I don't know what else I said, but I said, and... And I don't know why I said this. Obviously, it came from somewhere. I believe God wants us to suffer. Ouch. (laughs) That's what condensed in my thinking from what I was taught in the church. And it was emphasized. And I still have that feeling when I read verses like this. And I still know how people would react if that's what is first. Jesus mm-hmm. told that to his disciples after three and a half years of joy. He didn't tell them that from the get-go. He didn't say, leave your nets and follow me, and I will make you suffer.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: No, he, he mentored them for years before he said, okay, you're going to suffer. It's inevitable because they're allergic to joy, and you're learning the ways of joy. Now, if you said it that way, that would be a whole different story.
4: Mm-hmm
1: we, at least I was raised to think that suffering somehow must produce merit with God. And therefore, you know, you're going to have to suffer and prove if you're really loyal to God. And that was our whole view of the time of trouble. And so when I told this guy that he, he sort of like, well, I don't think God wants us to suffer. Well, I didn't have a proof text to contradict it. And so I felt like I was a failure. I had failed my testimony and I just sort of clammed up. And I don't know whatever happened after that, I just, that stuck in my head. And I really pondered that for the rest of my life was, what do I believe anyway? And how does suffering fit in? And why do we think, well, how do we relate to suffering? Because. Honestly, I think most people do think that suffering has merit. I mean, the Catholic Church has been teaching that for centuries. And we're not a whole lot different, unfortunately.
0: I have been struggling with that. Well, I'll tell you my honest struggling point has been to rejoice when suffering. Like Matthew 5. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which are before you. That's that has been my struggle, is is to uh, rejoice when suffering.
1: I yeah, believe yeah. that, yeah. I believe that it's how we've spun those words, because just in the last few months, it's starting to become quite clear to me that the rejoicing, you know, rejoice in everything, give thanks in everything. It doesn't say rejoice and give thanks for everything. You know, that means everything that happens to us is supposed to somehow be good, and that gets twisted in some horrible theology. But the rejoicing, well, I guess it began when I began realizing that gratitude, praise, thankfulness, unlike what I had assumed all my life, are not or payback for something good to happen. It is the antidote to sin. It's the antidote to suffering. So when Jesus says rejoice, he's not saying rejoice because you're suffering. Rejoice no matter, in spite of the suffering, because the very choice to rejoice is like the antidote that can counteract the power of that suffering to discourage you. And so he's telling you, yes, you will suffer. Here's the antidote. Don't forget, take the antidote and you can handle the suffering as long as you're taking the medicine to counteract it. That's with That
0: fits with Matthew, Matthew five. Be full of joy. He doesn't say, don't be happy because you're suffering. Just be full of joy. And be glad because you have a great reward. Look at the end game. Look at the the um, the result, the final analysis, and, and final inevitable consequences of your suffering and what it's going to mean. But
1: even that, I had to struggle with what is a reward, because under the reward punishment system, you're rewarded for doing the good thing, you're punished for doing the wrong thing. So is God into the rewarding system? And I started looking at everywhere where he talked about rewards. And I said, okay, what kind of rewards is he talking about? And I kept looking. I said, well, you know, growing up in Sabbath school, we thought the rewards were, oh, you get to ride on a giraffe. Or you get to, you know, be in charge of a planet. Or you get some special honor. It's like, wait a minute. In heaven, none of that's going to be appealing because that's all based on selfishness. So what kind of rewards is he talking about? And Jesus, it says, you know, for the reward that was set before him. Okay, what kind of reward was he? It's us. For? It's us. It's relationships. Yeah. And it suddenly realized, wait, the reward that we're supposed to long for, that we will receive in heaven, is not an arbitrary reward handed out by god it's the reward of every relationship and every partial relationship and every piece of influence we ever had on anybody whether we knew it or not it's the people who come up and say you know what what you wrote way back there and it got through this person and that person and i picked it up out of the gutter and wow it changed my mind And you're going what and, and and you know what the greatest rewards are, the most potent rewards are it's your worst enemy.
2: Yes, yes.
1: It's like fishing for the big fish. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying, You want big rewards? Go for the worst enemies you got mm-hmm. and go for everything you got. And even if you die at their hands, they will be your greatest reward.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you know, like Keith and I are great friends. But when we get to heaven, that's not going to be the biggest reward. We're already getting a reward, right? Mm
4: -hmm. And
1: it doesn't, you know, that doesn't downplay it. But if I love my worst enemy, in spite of what they're doing, if I let the love of God flow through me, because there's no way I can do it, and, and I let them mistreat me, and I treat them the way Jesus reacted, and then they show up in heaven. I'm going to have far greater intensity of joy with that person than I will with him just because of, of the, whatever you describe it, the intensity that required to, to turn that person around in their thinking. Just like you were describing a while ago, you know, the person you're like gave up hope on and suddenly there it is. And you got a taste of that reward that's the rewards we get in heaven. And that's what Jesus is looking forward to. He's like, he gets the greatest reward because he put out the greatest and he gets the greatest return.
2: The closest mm-hmm. to him.
1: Yes, yeah. And his, and the worst enemies who finally were won by his love become the greatest testimony of him, and that's his joy. Mm-hmm. And that's why he says, you know, I'm telling you all these things, that your joy may be full. I want you to share my joy. I want you to go out and love people and feel that reward like I'm doing. Yes. And Man. yes, you're going to suffer. Guess what? The more suffering you have, the more potential reward. That's why Paul and Silas, I was just looking at this morning, and actually in here, it, he talks about in chapter two, you know, that I went through this suffering and shame in Philippi. In Philippi, it was when they got, and by the way, it was the dream that sent them to Philippi. And they're looking around, who's this guy that wanted us to come here? Well, all they ended up with is in prison. You know, totally unjust, beaten, put in the stocks, shamed everything, and they start singing. And we think, oh, yeah, that was really brave. They're being a good. No, they knew what the antidote was. They were taking the antidote. And it was work- It worked so well. It destroyed the whole prison. The antidote has power in it. And then they found the guy who asked him to come over. It was the jailer. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the guy in the dream. All right, we found him. He's converted. He probably became the head of the church. The most hardened guy around. That was the joy. They they got rewarded for investing. In gratitude and praise.
0: Thank you. That is that is a, a beautiful spin, and that's not a spin, it, but it's a beautiful way of expressing something that the old way. Well, there was no joy in the old religion. Let's face it, right? I mean, I I, I remember the gloom and doom that rested on. I grew up in an Adventist community in the '60s, and I remember nothing but gloom and doom. So every sermon was on a sin, yep. uh, to the point where I decided one Sabbath that the way pastors chose their sermons to preach was that the conference sent around a, a, a questionnaire to the pastors to give them the list of sins their members had committed during the year, and then they cl- they collected and compiled that list from all of the churches, and then they sent out a, a master list to all the churches these are the sermons you need to preach <laughs> it isn't so but <laughs> it made sense to what was I, I was hearing wow there was it was a joyless religion
3: yeah it was
0: yeah uh, and um what gives and and actually one year after i was converted uh one year after i was converted uh, I had a real battle with Satan over whether what I believed about God was really true. He plunged me into a deep depression again, actually i shouldn 't say again it was my first one. And I battled for a, an entire year, and at camp meeting, I had two there were two preachers, and one preached God as a happy God, and the other preached God as wanting nothing but repentance all the time.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: and I had to make a decision. Wow. My mother took me to the meeting where the guy was teaching repentance. The youth meeting was where there was a happy God. Mm-hmm. I, was in, I was only 16 years old at the time. Wow. And I picked up Steps to Christ that I had been reading and read the first paragraph and said, God is the author of love and joy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's it. (laughs) My God is a happy God. And I I went out and told God, I I went out of the little trailer we were staying in, and I went out and told God that I believed he was a happy God. And my depression vanished. Mm -hmm. I was just gone. Amen. It was was totally a satanic experience, I believe.
3: Wow. Was it
1: Glenn Coon? No. It was about that time.
0: No, uh, Glenn Coon, I heard in my childhood, but uh, this was a different person. But anyway, it was, it was on the joy.
4: Right. Thank you.
0: I, I think this would be a good place to close. So I'm right. going to have prayer. We have just one minute anyway. Dear God, we thank you that you are the source of love, joy, and life. And that those those two things, love and joy, are component parts of life. We can't have life without them. We thank you for the messages we've learned this morning as we've talked together. We ask that you will go with us this week and that you will feed us with your joy and with your love and with your peace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.